the reading this evening is Mark chapter 8, verses 11 to 33, and can be found on page 1011 in the Red Bibles. Uh, and we also have Bibles in other languages and versions available at the back, and page numbers for those are also on the screen. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, It is because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see, and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember, when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the four thousand, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spat on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home, saying, don't even go into the village. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. This is the word of the Lord. Ali, thank you very much for reading that. Uh, we're going to be looking at, at that passage in a bit more detail over the next uh, few uh, minutes. Uh, but as we kick off, I have a, a picture. Anyone know who that is? Out of interest? It, it's uh, a man called T.E. Lawrence, perhaps more uh, famously known as Lawrence uh, of Arabia. Uh, and T.E. Lawrence was one of the most brilliant men 
of his generation. He was a war hero in the First World War. He was decorated. He won medals. Uh, he was a scholar. He was actually a fellow at a college in Oxford called All Souls College, and you have to be invited uh, to do that. It's quite a prestigious uh, post. He, he was a scholar in archaeology, I think. Um, uh, he was an archaeologist. Great. I, I've preempted myself there. Uh, he was a linguist. He spoke several languages. Um, and he was an author of uh, many, uh, many books, but one quite famous book, The Seven Pillars of Wisdom. So, you know, multi-talented person, uh, a very brilliant person. After the First World War, he left the army uh, and he joined the Air Force, the quite new Royal uh, Air Force. Because he'd left the army, he lost his rank uh, and he started back at the bottom. And he was uh, an airman in the Air Force. Uh, and he was stationed in Dorset uh, near the home of this man, Thomas Hardy, famous author, uh, and because they knew one another very well, of course, Lawrence would often go round for uh, tea at the Hardy's, spot of tea, uh, something like that, nice sandwiches, cucumber sandwiches, lovely. And um, one day he was there, and he found himself sharing the sofa uh, with the local Mayor S. Now, the Mayor S was a bit of a snob, and she, was very, she didn't recognize him. She was surprised to find herself seated on the sofa with this common airman. wasn't even an officer in the Air Force. So she thought to herself, I know what I'll do. I will speak in French to exclude this commoner from the conversation. So she turns to Mrs. Hardy and she says in French, Oh my, Mrs. Hardy, I never thought I'd find myself having tea with a private soldier. At which point Lawrence interrupted, also in fluent French, I'm terribly sorry, he said. Mrs. Hardy doesn't speak French. <laughs> Would you like me to interpret for you? <laughs> what a brilliant man, and what a superficial judgment. Missing the point entirely. But it's easy to do, isn't it, to be in the presence uh, of someone great and, and maybe miss it. And in fact, if you've been with us in these chapters in Mark, something a bit like that's been going on. Here's Jesus. He's been doing amazing things, drawing crowds, and yet one or two people seem to get it. The, the Syrophoenician woman uh, comes to Jesus and calls him Lord. Uh, but by and large, you've got his hometown who can't really work him out. What's he doing? That's just Joseph and Mary's lad, isn't it? You've got Herod who... Well, I don't know who this guy is. Is it John the Baptist back to life? Uh, you've got uh, the Pharisees who want to tell him off for not being clean enough. You've got all sorts of things going on. And in between, weaving in and out of it all, you've got the disciples. And the question is, which side are the disciples going to fall on? Are they going to turn in faith to this great Jesus, like the Syrophoenician woman? Or are they going to go the other way? And it's a famous passage we're looking at. I'm sure many of us have heard it taught many times. Uh, but it's a wonderful passage to, to look at. It's a crunch point, as Sarah said in, in the Gospel of Mark, a turning point almost. Maybe you saw that as it was being read. But it is a wonderful passage to help us diagnose uh, where the disciples are. But also as we do that, it'll help us diagnose where we are. Help us to think about what we see, what we really see. When we look at Jesus, what do you see? Uh, uh, and the first thing um, I want to look at is um, this. Why people fail to see Jesus? Why people fail to see uh, Jesus? 
it is an amazing thing, isn't it? With all the miracles that he's doing, all the power that he's showing, and yet, not just the disciples, but the disciples as well, people don't yet seem to grasp it. And in that first section, those first few verses, uh, particularly this little scene on the boat, uh, did you see it there? Uh, Jesus makes a slightly cryptic statement, it has to be said, in verse 15. Be careful, Jesus warned them, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. And they don't really get what he's talking about. Is it because we've got no bread? What's going on? Why is Jesus asking this question? Uh, And then Jesus, verse 17, it's kind of scathing, isn't it? Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? And then he goes to remind them all of the things that he's done in their presence. Don't you remember my power and how great I am? But there's an interesting little point in verse 17. Yes, Jesus reminds them, look what you've seen. Think it through. It's rational. It's reasonable. Christianity is rational and reasonable. Uh, and maybe you're like me sometimes if you've been a Christian a while and you've gone through all the arguments why Jesus must have risen from the dead. And you just think, how could anybody not believe this? It just makes so much sense. But in verse 17, did you notice that, that the reason they can't see is connected to something going on in their heart? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? It, it turns out that it's not just an academic problem when people don't see Jesus for who he is. There's an issue in the heart. And these chapters, uh, six, 6 to 8, actually subtly, Mark is diagnosing that heart problem. Uh, I might have said a couple of weeks ago that some scholars call this the bread section. There's an awful lot of references to bread. If you read it through, chapters 6 to 8, a lot of references to bread and loaves and yeast. Uh, And it's a subtle little picture. Uh, And even there at at, uh, the end, as Jesus reminds them about the loaves again and makes this cryptic reference to yeast, it it turns out what you see when you look at those feeding miracles uh, is really going to reveal what you see when you look at Jesus. And... The problem they've got, it turns out, is too much yeast in their diet. Those who can't see Jesus, they've got too much yeast in their diet. Did you see verse 15? Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of Pharisee, the Pharisees and that of Herod's. Well, what's he talking about? It is a cryptic statement, isn't it? Throughout the Bible, yeast is used as a picture of, of something that taints. Uh, that, that, um, so when you put yeast in something, it often puffs it up. So it's a, a picture for sin uh, and pride, often used as an image, image for those things. Uh, and here we've got, we're told about two types of yeast, the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod's. And actually, if we've been reading through chapter 6 and 7, as we have in this series, we've seen both Herod in chapter 6 and the Pharisees in chapter 7. Uh, and then you can start to piece together, I think, what Jesus is, is talking about So the yeast of the Pharisees in chapter 7 was self-righteousness. We're clean, Jesus. We know the rules. We keep them. We don't need you to save us. Thanks very much. The yeast of Herod in chapter 6, do you you remember Herod? He wanted to be the king. But if he was going to be the king, then he had to say that Jesus wasn't the king. He had to say anything else. He was John the Baptist come back to life. He'd say anything rather than say Jesus was the king. Because he was interested in self-rule. I'm going to call the shots. I'm going to be in charge. Herod, yeast of Herod, 
self-rule, yeast of the Pharisees, self-righteousness. But both of them have self at the center. See, the heart problem is, the problem that puts me, my interests, my desires, my wants first before Jesus. That my agenda comes first and Jesus has to fit around that. Yeah, I'm sure many of us have been in meetings like this. Uh, meetings where you might have to plan something. Maybe you're planning an event and someone's got a hobby horse and they just won't get off it. And they'll keep talking about whatever it is. You know, the chairs must be in a certain pattern. Or we must have this kind of food and not that kind of food. You know, these, these things, uh, th- these people can be very effective in getting their own way. It can be quite uh, annoying sometimes as well, I suppose. But uh, there can be a clash of agendas. Everyone having their own uh, agenda sometimes. Well, James was, took us right back to the beginning of Mark last week and taught ta- took us to those words of Jesus as he begins uh, the gospel, repent and believe. And if I can say it like this, to repent basically means, right, we've all got agendas. We've all got things we care about, all got things we're planning, all got things we want to do, all got decisions we want to make. To repent basically means picking up your agenda for your life and tearing it apart and replacing it with the agenda Jesus has for your life. That's what it means. You fit in with him. He doesn't fit round you anymore. See, there's a danger we come to Jesus and we expect him to want to do the things that we want him to do, not the things he's actually bothered about doing. Well, he should be interested in this or that or the other. And actually, Jesus has his own agenda for your life, for my life, for the church, for the world. It's a good agenda, we must always remember that, but he has his own agenda. And part of repenting and believing is saying, actually, I don't call the shots anymore. I don't rule myself. He is Lord. And another part of repenting and believing is saying, and I need him. I need him to sort me out because on my own, I can't measure up to God's standards. I I can't be righteous enough by myself. I need him to be my savior and my Lord. See, if you've got the yeast of Herod, you won't call him Lord, because you'll want to be the Lord yourself. If you've got the yeast of the Pharisees, you won't call out to him a saviour, because you don't think you need one. But Jesus is the Messiah who is saviour and Lord. And you see, that's dangerous, isn't it? That's quite scary to actually say, look, I, I need someone to rule me. I need someone to save me. I can't be in control anymore. I have to give up that control. I have to put my agenda to one side and pick up Jesus's. If that doesn't scare you a little bit, even if you've been a Christian for a while, I don't think you've fully understood what's being asked. Because as I probed it this week, I thought, wow, that's asking a lot, isn't it? Because our hearts do, by nature, often want to cling on to control. Or cling on to that sense of self-righteousness. But the thing is, actually clinging to your own agendas, often you end up looking a little bit foolish. I mean, think about the last two chapters. Think about Herod in chapter 6. So keen was he to cling on to his rule of himself that he ended up saying that Jesus must have been a resurrected John the Baptist with his head back on his shoulders, which doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? Well, think about the Pharisees in chapter 7. Very interesting, because in at the end of chapter 6, Jesus feeds a crowd of 5,000 and more people with a few scraps of food out of thin air. 
And the Pharisees, so obsessed with their own agenda, travel 100 miles to complain he didn't wash his hands first. Our agendas are not the right agendas for this world. I mean, like, when you really think about it, it's so much better news that Jesus has a better agenda. And yet it's scary. And it's that scariness, that desire to cling on to control or to think of ourselves as righteous, which is why people do often fail to see Jesus. Perfectly intelligent people. They, they can understand the evidence and the arguments that we're making, but we mustn't ever think it's only an intellectual case. There is a heart issue. Well, why people fail to see uh, Jesus. Uh, the second point, what people need in order to see Jesus. What do we need in order to see Jesus? Uh, and we get that basically by this funny little event dropped into the middle of this passage in verses 22 to 26. Uh, maybe when Ali was reading it, you, you realized, hang on, did that really need to be there? Jesus is there talking with his disciples, and then he carries on talking with his disciples. And out of nowhere, we get this odd little miracle where it doesn't seem to work first time. Uh, Jesus, is he running out of power? What's going on here? I, I, I don't know what's, what's quite happening. It's, it's an odd event. Uh, but, of course, it's there to illustrate a point. Mark's not clumsy. And his point is this. In order to see Jesus, we need a miracle. We need a miracle, which is why he provides a miracle right at that moment. This blind man, uh, they came to Bethsaida, verse 22. Some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand, led him outside the village. He makes a personal connection with it. Spat on the man's eyes, uh, put his hands on him. Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. So he gets a bit of his sight back, but not all of it. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored. He saw everything clearly. And so what happens for this man is he moves like this. No sight to partial sight to clear sight. And when we grasp that, we can sort of understand, I hope now, why Mark puts it where he does. You see, when they're in the boat with Jesus, the disciples do not see or understand. In the, in the bit we're going to get onto in just a minute afterwards, for the first time, one of them, Peter, says, you're the Messiah. For the first time, he sees. But as we're going to, as we're going to see, he doesn't yet see clearly. He's sort of like the man in the middle of the miracle. He's got the partial sight, not, not the whole sight yet. And so that's why this miracle is here. It's to tell us what we need in order to see Jesus. And it does take a miracle. Because that heart problem, that unwillingness to, to let go of control and give it to Jesus, to actually submit to him as Savior and Lord, is so powerful, so strong is that within us. And it, it persists even after we've become Christians. You know, there are times this week when I know what Jesus wants for me, and yet there's a bit of me that's resistant, don't want to give up control. So powerful is it that I need God's grace to break in. And God's power to break in, to change my heart. So here's a good question. Where are you on that spectrum? I guess there's all sorts of people here, here tonight. I don't know everyone and all their stories. Some people might be coming along just because they're interested. Maybe you're here and you're saying, 
do you know what? I'm interested in this Christianity stuff. I've got a Christian friend or a family member, but if I'm honest, I don't see it yet. Just don't see what everyone's talking about. Uh, maybe you've been, been coming a while and you're like, no, I, I get it. Jesus is. He's, I'm seeing something about him. He's very, very special and he, he's important. I'm just not quite sure I see everything about him yet. I don't, I don't really understand why he's like this or why he makes a big deal of that or whatever it might be. Maybe you're someone who's been a Christian for some years and you've got a thorough grasp on who Jesus is. And yet I think all of us need refreshers. Well, here are the, here's the point I want to make out of that. Wherever you are, to get to see who Jesus is, you need a miracle. And that means no boasting. We've been teaching the Jets and Explorers uh, this term in the morning about the gospel from Romans. And one of the points we've made is no bragging. No bragging. They like that. They like saying that when they answer. And it's a great lesson to teach uh, Christians from a very young age. You're not a Christian because you're better or more moral or anything like that. The only thing that's happened is God's done a miracle for you. And yet, you know, we can forget. <laughs> if you've been a Christian for a while, you can suddenly secretly suspect, well, it is. I, I, you know, I, am, I have been following Jesus for some time now. His grace gets to work in our lives by a miracle. No boasting. Lots of praying. Uh, maybe you have a friend or a family member that you dearly love to see Jesus for who he is. I guess most of us have at least one or two very close people to us who don't yet see Jesus for who he is. Well, give them good arguments and give them good reasons and take them to the Bible by all means. God works through that. But they do need a miracle to see. So don't forget to pray for them. Ask God to work because he needs to. And be patient with the process. It's really interesting that Jesus does this two-stage miracle. This, this thing that actually takes a bit of time. The, the, the guy says, oh, well, that didn't work. Come on, Jesus, what's going on here? I just wanted a zap. Be patient with the process. Maybe you are moving along from no sight to partial sight to clear sight. And maybe you're a bit frustrated because it doesn't seem to be happening just like that. Well, the way God's grace works in lots of people's lives, it's not like that. So many testimonies that we hear, or baptism services or whenever, is actually it took a long time. It was a process. Sometimes that's the way God works. And so if it's you who's trying to see who Jesus is, you need to be patient for God's power and grace to, to work that miracle out in your life. And if it's your friend that you're praying for, you need to be persistent in praying. Even if it's taking a bit longer uh, than you might like. It doesn't happen all at once, necessarily. This guy came to see in stages. But our third point, so why people fail to see Jesus. What we need to see Jesus is a miracle. Uh, but here's the thing, once we've seen who Jesus is, Will we see the crucified Jesus? Will we see the real Jesus? Will we see the Jesus who, who Jesus shows us? Will we let him be him? Rather than try and turn him into something that he's not, really. You see, Peter finally sees. So they have this conversation. Um, Peter finally sees, doesn't he? Verse 27, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? 
We've been, we've been looking through these chapters at all sorts of opinions about Jesus. Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others one of the prophets. And then Jesus makes it personal. What about you? Who do you say I am? That is a question Jesus wants each and every one of us to answer. And Peter answers, you are the Messiah. First time. First time a human has acknowledged it in Mark's gospel, clearly and directly. First time one of the disciples has. And then weirdly, verse 30, Jesus warned them not to tell anyone. Hang on, Jesus, why? They've finally got it. We've been going around with them. They've been scared. They've not understood what's going on. And then finally, one of them gets it, and you say, don't say a word. Because Peter sees, but he doesn't. The expectations of the Messiah at this time from the Jewish people were that he would be a son of David who would rule on David's throne. If you were here for the two Samuel series and we saw how God gave David a kingdom and established it and made him secure, and they were expecting a king like that who'd defeat their enemies, kick the Romans out, do something like that. But, but look at the kind of Messiah Jesus is. Verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law. He must be killed and after three days rise again. And notice the repeated use of the word must. Literally, the word means it is necessary that. This is what it's going to be like, says Jesus. This is what I've come to do. It's not negotiable. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Just called him the Messiah. No, no, Jesus, no, you must have got that wrong. Messiah. Terribly sorry, Messiah, but you must have got that wrong. Peter will not accept this suffering Messiah. And yet, it is necessary. And look at Jesus' rebuke. It is a stinging rebuke. Peter was trying to rebuke Jesus, but when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, interesting notes, possibly concerned for their spiritual well-being, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, fool. No, he didn't say that. Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, merely human concerns. You've not got God's agenda. You've not got my agenda. You've got your own agenda here. That's why you're not seeing it clearly. But boy, is that severe. It is necessary that Jesus goes to the cross. The cross is necessary. It is the center of the Christian faith, the cross and resurrection. There's a reason why Christians have carried crosses and made signs of crosses on them and all sorts of different things down the ages to remember the cross. Because it is necessary that Jesus goes to the cross. And a gospel without a cross is not just wrong or faulty or a little bit off the mark. Not according to Jesus anyway. Jesus says it's satanic. I wonder if we'd have the courage to say that. I'm not sure I would if Jesus didn't. 
And yet he says a, a, a gospel without a cross, a Christ without a cross, is the work of the devil. So why do people sideline the cross? Well, I think Peter, reading forward, probably does it for the third of these three reasons. But I think there are three reasons why people sideline the cross. And this is sort of as we're coming into land. Some people want to do that because they want to deny or downplay sin. Either get rid of the idea of sin, or or just say it doesn't matter that much. Uh, The problem is that Jesus who goes to the cross says sin does matter. Look how much it matters. It cost the Son of God his life to pay for it. Uh, Some people sideline the cross, I think, to deny or downplay judgment. If God will not overlook sin and he will judge it, that could be scary. But the cross shouts out that, yes, he does. He will do that. And some do it to deny or downplay Christian suffering. And I think this is probably where Peter's at. He's imagining a great and glorious Messiah who's going to win great victories and he'll be there with him in the glory. And Jesus says, actually, it's, it's a road to the cross that you need to take, Peter. That's a hard road. I'm not going to lie to you about that. Are you ever tempted to do any of those things? I'll put my hand up. Very often when I'm explaining the gospel to a friend for the first time, there's a huge temptation in my heart to do that. Just makes it a bit more palatable, doesn't it? If we don't have to mention words like sin and judgment. And I think that's why we all need the sting in Jesus' rebuke in verse 33. It's not nice to hear. It's not easy to hear. Uh, But actually, what kind of gospel am I going to tell to my friends that I love? You see, there's that bit in my heart, my yeasty heart, my hard heart, that I'm still wrestling with. I'm a Christian, still wrestling with it. That wants to just pretend that Jesus' rule isn't absolute, that his salvation isn't as necessary as maybe some others would say. And that's why I need verse 33. I need to keep the cross before my eyes and not let it drift. Jesus doesn't want to let me slip away from that. And the reason I need to see Jesus like that is because that is who he has said he's come to be. And his agenda must come before mine. Because the moment I replace what he says with what I say, uh, the moment I do that, I'm going to stop seeing the real Jesus. We don't want to see just a Jesus in airman's uniform, if I can put it like that. Uh, A Jesus who, uh, uh, you know, is is just a a prophet or a nice teacher or maybe a miracle worker. Because that's not the real Jesus. That's not who he's come to be, not what he's come to do. He's come to rescue us. He's come to save us. See, if, if we downplay the cross, if we downplay sin, we'd we'd end up downplaying Jesus. Because he's come to do something far more wonderful and glorious than we'd ever imagined. He's come to rescue us. 
and rulers in perfect goodness, now and for eternity. What do you see? What do you see? I sometimes wish Jesus did have another agenda. I want him to have my agenda, don't I? But actually, when I, when I think like that, I'm short-selling not just Jesus, I'm short-selling myself. It's much better that he has his agenda than mine. Because he's much better than I am. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage, this turning point passage. Thank you um, that Jesus is, will not settle for half sight of who he is from Peter. Thank you that he's patient with those who don't yet see. Thank you that he's powerful and can work a miracle. Thank you that he's good. He's a good king and a good savior. And when there's that bit in our heart that's scared to give up control, when there's that yeast of the Pharisees or of Herod, when there are those things that would take us away from Jesus or or, or cast our gaze to one side, help us to come back to passages like this where Jesus is fixed, determined, steady, solid and where his goodness and his love shines through. For he knew what was necessary so that we could be saved. And despite temptations all around to take a different road, an easier road, he said, no, for the sake of my people, I will go on that hard and necessary road. Help us to see that and help our hearts to be filled with love because of it. For Jesus' sake, amen.